Wow, what a sweet, sweet time of worship this morning. And uh, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. I hope you've had a really a great, refreshing summer, an encouraging summer. I know some of you, it's great to see your faces. And uh, just thankful for you, thankful for the, the way the Lord has maybe encouraged you this summer. And he's brought you back to us this morning. And uh, I had the privilege of being away for the last um, week and a half or so with one of the elders of our church, Matt Sylvester. And uh, God gave me the, the, the great privilege of going back to the seminary where I graduated from in uh, Los Angeles, California, and I was able to preach at the seminary to a group of 300 pastors, and um, just such, such a tremendous blessing and a wonderful experience. And then from there, we flew directly to Romania, where, as many of you know, and if you don't, hopefully this is encouraging to you, where we are, being, we are getting very involved in church planting in Romania. And God really used the, the time there in my heart and my life, both in Los Angeles and in Romania, in just a very special and unique way, in, in, in a very unexpected way, I would say. God just really allowed me to, I think, providentially, leading up to the launch of this ministry year, to get back into the book of Acts, to remind me of what is most important to give me some perspective, to refresh my soul, and be, I'm telling you, being in a place that is training and equipping pastors who I know for a fact are going to be going all over the world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach and herald the word of God, is a tremendous, tremendous joy to think about the way the gospel is continuing to advance. And then that, to get to go to Romania and to get to see the work that God is doing there and the church planting that's happening there and the privilege that we have as a church to be involved in what God is doing there, I'm, it, just, it just really shaped my heart in such an important way. You know, I, I really think it's important that we receive this kind of refreshment and perspective from the Lord from time to time, don't you? Because our hearts can grow stagnant, can't they? And complacent with where we're at in the Christian life, with the way we're viewing the church of Jesus Christ, with how we understand God's plan of redemption in the world. And if we're honest, I think we've all been there. We can just become stagnant. I just want you to think about that word for a minute, stagnant. What comes to my mind is that stagnant water. You know water that, that, that has no outlet and no inlet, it's just sitting, and what begins to happen is it becomes a breeding ground for bacteria, it becomes a danger zone for disease, it begins to smell, it becomes, begins to become utterly useless. And when it comes to the, the Christian life, it can be equally as dangerous and equally as deadly for Christians and for the church. When we become stagnant, when we stop moving, when there is no inflow from God, and when there is no outlet of God's word and God's activity, the church can become stagnant, and it can lead to a slow and often painful death of the church of Jesus Christ. I think that when the church stops moving, the church stops living. And it can happen so subtly over time, this slow drift in our own lives, in the church, we can become so preoccupied with the wrong things, good things sometimes, but the wrong things, and missing the main thing. And I love the book of Acts because it brings us back to the main thing time and time again. It just drives this point home that we exist as a church designed by God to advance the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. 
And we're parachuting back into Acts chapter 13. If you weren't here uh, with us all of last year, we were marching through the, the book of Acts and we saw so much of how the church began and how God sent them off with the power of the Holy Spirit and things began to progress and move forward from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And we're left in Acts 13 with this question in, my, in our minds. Will the gospel go to the ends of the earth? It's been 25 years since Pentecost. And rather than being stagnant, the church is growing and flourishing. It is moving outwards and onwards, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And it is time we see in this text that the gospel begins to move out into the final dimension, into the outermost parts of the earth. The church in Antioch is where we find ourselves in the context of chapter 13. And the church of Antioch, if you remember, we're given a little bit of information in chapter 11, and we've heard a little bit about what that city was like. It was a Sodom and Gomorrah-like city, but it is here that we see the first real beachhead in the pagan world for Christianity. The church was off to a great start. It had some great growth and it was beginning to have great impact. It's a church that's on fire for the things of the Lord and God is working in some unbelievably powerful ways. He is preparing them. In the midst of his working, he is preparing them, listen church, listen, for greater and greater things. They're ready for more. They're ready to take the gospel and keep moving forward. They're not content to just stay in Antioch with the truth that they know, the truth that they love, and the truth that they believe. And as we look at this church, I trust, I trust that we will see ourselves this morning. I trust that you'll be able to relate to what this church was going through. We're no longer an infant church. We're not one years old anymore. God has allowed us to grow. I mean, look around. God has allowed us to grow, and we've grown not just in number. We've grown in depth of maturity. A foundation has been laid. There has been strong doctrine, strong teaching. Gifted individuals have been used. Many of you sitting here in this room, and now, like the church in Antioch, it's time that we are ready to move out. This is essentially what every church is called to to take the gospel out, to advance, and to move forward. And you'll notice the screen behind me. This is the ministry theme for the year. As we continue to go through Acts, the common theme that will be coming up over and over and over again is this idea of forward, advancement, onward, pressing in. That's our prayer. That's what we believe God is calling us to. And so from our text, I want to give us three essential requirements for the church to be able to move forward. And the first is this, we'll break down our, our missions, our, our ministry year theme with three kind of headings. The first is this, the mandate. The mandate to be a pursuing church. To be a pursuing church. Let's look at the first few verses together. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
I think we see very clearly here that the key in any church that is going to have an impact on the world and keep the gospel moving forward is that it be a spirit-filled church, a spirit-led church, a spirit-controlled church. The New Testament makes it very clear that to be a spirit-filled church is to be controlled by the Spirit of God. To walk in step with the Spirit is to walk essentially in step with the will of God. And the will of God is found first and foremost through the Word of God. And here we see at Antioch that this is a, a church in which the people walk in constant obedience to the will of God. A church that walks, thinks, acts with the energy of the Spirit of God because their hearts are so given over to the Word of God, so desirous of the will of God in their lives. But for this to happen in any church, I want you to, to see this from the text as well, it requires that there is a leadership of the church who is pursuing, pursuing spiritual realities. The Old Testament makes this clear. This has always been the case. Like people, like priests, people never rise above their leaders. And what the church requires when it comes to leadership is strong, spiritual, godly men. And there is a fascinating list given to us here. The leaders of this church are mentioned very specifically they are men who know, who love, and who live the word of God. They're so faithful to the things of the Lord, and they teach the word of God to the people of God. Let's just look at the names really quickly. We have Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. This is kind of the, the first staff of the church in Antioch, or the elders of the church, if you will. We know a little bit about Barnabas. Barnabas has been mentioned all the way from the beginning of the book of Acts. He's been a prominent figure in the life of the early church. He's such a godly, loving, generous man. He's filled with the Spirit, chapter 11 tells us. He's a Levite, and he's from this place called Cyprus. He was well-trained in the Word of God in the Old Testament, and so he makes just a fantastic leader, a man who has the knowledge of the Word and a man who has the Spirit of God and is so filled with the Spirit of God. It's likely he's mentioned first because he is what we would maybe call the senior pastor of the church. He's the lead pastor in this church. We have Simeon next, and you'll notice what the Word of God says about him, and this is, this is something that we need to pay attention to, Simeon, who was called Niger, and that simply means that he was black. That's what Niger means. It means he was black, and I just wanted to show you this. There is a, a racial and an ethnic diversity in the church, in the early church, and this is such a beautiful thing that there is a mix of people. There is no class separation taking place. There is such unity, and it's a beautiful unity. Lucius of Cyrene is likely as well ethnic, uh, and he's from North Africa, that's where Cyrene is, Menaean. He's a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. And lastly, we have Saul. We know so much about Saul. Saul, who had been blinded by the glory of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. A man who is so well-trained as a Pharisee. A man who is being so mightily used by God. And this is just the beginning of his ministry, his missionary movement in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a mix of people that God has chosen all of these godly men leading the church, diversity but unity. 
And I want you to notice that the leadership here are classified, they're qualified by a couple of statements. The first verse tells us that they are prophets and teachers. Christian prophets would have conveyed, as did the prophets in the history of Israel, God's revelation expressed in terms of exhortation, instruction, critique, encouragement, and at times disclosure about future events. God was revealing new things that had not previously been known, and he used the prophets in the New Testament, the Word of God tells us, to lay the foundation for the church. And so these men are likely considered both prophets, and you'll notice the second word, teachers, In other words, they took that revealed truth of God and they expounded it. They explained it. They helped the people of God to embrace it. They took both the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament teachings of Jesus and the apostles and they began to form that bedrock foundation for the life of the church. In fact, Ephesians 2.20, as I just mentioned, reminds us of how important the prophets and the apostles were to the early ministry of the church. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that God giving good gifts to the church, he gives us. He gives us all of these leaders, very specifically the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And for this purpose, listen, it's so important we see how God is using this church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. God had gifted the church with these leaders who were pouring into the church, and they were a pursuing church. He was calling them to pursue the face of God through the Word of God. And you need to understand this, that we cannot be a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led church apart from being a Word-driven church. And that is the emphasis that the Word of God is placing here. The Word of God was paramount in the life of the church. And a pursuing church will always be a prepared church. And so the Holy Spirit sent a message to this church. You'll notice it says, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And it's interesting, I mean, the Bible isn't very clear here on how that sounded, how it came about, if it was some kind of mysterious, mystical calling, or, or well, here's what's most likely. Listen, that God used the prophets to bring this message to the people. However it happened, it was undeniably clear what God was doing, what God had called this church to consider and to know and understand. The Holy Spirit sent this message to His church, which propelled it, listen, into a new era of missionary involvement. And it happened, I love this, while, notice that, notice that, the the verb tense is very specific, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I mean, while they were pursuing the Lord, while their hearts were so engaged with the Lord and devoted to the Lord, God is speaking to them. I mean, there's a principle there that we need to grab a hold of, that God speaks to his people as his people lean into him, as his people pursue him with everything they are. 
The they there refers likely not just to the leaders, but to the entire church. This is a a community reality here. They were all worshiping the Lord, which that word can be understood as serving the Lord, offering their service to the Lord as an act of worship. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You just need to get this. They were giving themselves to the pursuit of the Lord. That was what the church knew they had to do. That's what the church knew they were supposed to be all about, a life devoted to pursuing and serving the Lord. Everything they did, and I just think about this in the context of our church. I mean, here's what it means. Sometimes we have this very tunnel vision perspective on what it means to worship the Lord, but the picture we have here, the very word indicates it is a holistic picture of the community of God when they gather together. Okay, where God has gifted so many of you in so many different and magnificent ways, the way in which you come and you set up, you sacrificially give yourself by setting this place up, by putting out chairs, by serving in the children's ministry, by greeting people with gospel hospitality, by pouring them a cup of coffee and giving them a warm smile, by preaching the word, by singing our songs, all of this, all of this, by praying, by giving, this is the, our act of devotion to the Lord, our act of worship to the Lord. And how that might change the way we even walk into church. How that might change the way we do what we do when we serve one another. Everything we do is to be seen as, God, God, this is for you. God, this is my life given over to you. God, I want nothing of me. I want all of you. I want you exalted over all. That's worship. It's a heart attitude that manifests itself in action, in service, in sacrifice, in praise. And I love this. It it combines this idea with fasting. And again, this is so fascinating to me because it appears that fasting was actually a community event. It wasn't just an individual pursuit. This was something that it would appear that the church together said, let's devote ourselves to times of fasting together with a common goal and a common pursuit. Fasting is always a mark of deep spiritual concern It's a statement we're making to God, and here's what we're saying. We're giving up, Lord, necessities, things that our our body maybe needs. And we're saying, God, I need you more than I need the basic necessities of life. I need you, God, more than I need anything else in life. And so people willingly give something up and devote that time to pursuing the Lord. You give up things of the world And fasting can take any different kinds of forms. It's mainly associated with food, but we can do fast from all different kinds of things. Giving up things of the world to demonstrate that you are consumed with the things of God. I just love that because that's what the church is supposed to be. A place and a people who are consumed with the things of God. It is evidence of an urgent desire, a pleading with the Lord to move in power, to do something. It's expressing devotion, persistence, passion, and pursuit of the Almighty. How desperately we need this. How desperately we need to be a people who are passionately pursuing the Lord. Again, likely in verse 2 there, it's likely that a prophet was used by the Holy Spirit to pinpoint Barnabas and Saul for the work that he called them to do. 
And I love this again too. It happens as they're worshiping. God reveals this truth. It becomes so clear. Maybe they're having a worship service and they're all just serving and worshiping and singing and the word of God is being taught and preached and all of a sudden God speaks through his prophets. And he says, set apart for me these two men, Barnabas and Saul. I want you to think about that for a moment. God uses people who are pursuing him, not people who aren't. God isn't dusting off the people who are doing nothing spiritually to use them to do great spiritual things. Do you realize that? God always takes the people who are humbling themselves, leaning into him, desiring more of him. God takes those people who are passionately pursuing him, and he says, yes, I can use you. You are so ready and so prepared. Now, the good news is is that God can break apart those of us who are a little bit dusty, I want you to notice this. Isn't this amazing how God works? He always loves to take the best and the most devoted. Think about this early church, right? Can you just imagine being in this early church and, and all of a sudden this prophet stands up and says, Barnabas and Saul, and you're like, no, 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 that can't be right. This guy must be a false prophet. We can't part with Barnabas and Saul. Like Barnabas is the head guy. I mean, he's the one who's teaching us every week. And Paul, I mean, have you seen this guy explain the scriptures? Have you seen him refute people who contradict? Nobody handles the word of God like Saul. We can't afford to lose these guys, Lord. They're the best. And God says, yep. This, this, is, this is the way God often works. And I'll, I, like, I read this, and instantly, you know what came into my mind? A few years back, when one of our elders, Jason Belgrave, said, I believe God is calling me away to ministry. And I was like, Lord, no, we gotta, he's got to stay. We're a young church. I mean, we're still fragile. God, if, God, they're, they're so involved in ministry. They're doing so much. I mean, he's the best of the best right now in this church. And God said, exactly. So off he goes to seminary, and now he's in Peterborough, and God is using him mightily there. And now, now listen, we rejoice and we praise God. And you know what God did? God allowed us, listen, the pain of separation, and God brought in a whole another group of people to be trained up, to be prepared, and to be ready to be used by him. And the words here are so specific. Set them apart consecrate them, pull them out from everybody else. I have something very unique and special for these guys. You ever ask yourself why people go into ministry? I often get that question. Why, why did you choose to be a pastor? And honestly, uh, <laughs> the only answer I can give people is, is just, I, I, didn't, I didn't really choose this. God called me to this. I, I would not choose this on my own in a million years. But, but, I, but listen, but here's where my heart is at. I couldn't not do this. That's where the Lord had me. I tried to do something else, and God said, no, you will not escape this desire. You will not escape this compulsion in your heart. You will do what I have called you to do. Why do people leave everything? Why do they uproot their families? Why do they leave their comfortable lifestyles? And why do they go to third world countries to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because they are compelled to. They have to. God is calling them to it. You set people apart for certain things. The Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God puts His hand on your heart, and He compels you to go, you go, you don't stop. I remember sharing it when I was in California, how encouraging it was to be at a place that trained 
men as if everything they were doing depended, like souls, lives depended on it. And I remember I stood up there and I just, I said, you know, one of the most encouraging things that was ever said to me when I stood, stepped foot on this seminary campus in the orientation, I was this young, young punk kid from Canada, didn't know what I was doing, didn't know what God was calling me to ultimately. And I remember being looked at by an older man on the faculty and he said, if God, if you can do anything else but this, go and do it. I tell you, that put the fear of God into me. here. It's so clear that God has called them, and I love it, though. It's not just that they just kind of pack up and run away. Notice what happens. In verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is such a beautiful picture. It is clear that the Spirit of God is the one guiding, leading, and directing, and commissioning these men, but you have to see the way God is working. The church comes alongside and affirms it, agrees with it. And the church here demonstrates such a sincere devotion to God, don't they? I mean, it's, they heard, listen, this is amazing. They heard the clear word of God, and they knew that God had set these men apart. But what did they do? They get down on their knees, they begin to pray, and they begin to fast because they realize the seriousness and significance of what this will mean for them and what this will mean for the world. This is powerful. I love this. The church is so involved. Their hearts are so knit together with what God is doing here. This is why the praise and prayer nights is so important to us as a church family, because we get together and we call out to the Lord together and we knit our hearts together around the things of the Lord and the call of God on this church and we ask God to do what only he can do and we commit ourselves to saying, God, we need you to do it. And so they lay their hands on them and this is an expression of identification, of affirmation, of confirmation. It's like they're saying, guys, we're with you. We're with you in this. You're, you're going. We understand that you're gonna do the hard work in that, but you need to know that back here while we're in the church context, we're gonna do the hard work of praying for you, of supporting you. And we believe in what's going on here and we're affirming that God has prepared you for this. Just because God isn't calling you to the mission field doesn't mean that you're not involved. Just because God isn't calling you to plant a church or maybe go to a place and help where they're planting a church doesn't mean you're not involved. Doesn't mean your prayers don't matter. Doesn't mean your support and encouragement doesn't matter. It's just as important. And the Antioch church's vision is not simply, I love this, for its own outreach in Antioch, but for God's larger purposes in the world. That's what's happening here. Don't miss this. And I can just affirm for you that the elders of this church have a vision, not just for the Durham region. We are not content to see God simply working in this place, in this church, in this community. We believe firmly that God is calling us to be actively engaged in going further and taking the gospel to the nations. I can remember last year as we began to study through the book of Acts, we, we, we just saw the mission, the gospel going forth, and we, we, just, we just knew there was this compulsion in the, all of our hearts as elders saying, God, God, what do you want us to do? Where else do you want us to be involved? And we've been involved in missions. We've been doing work in Nepal, and it's been a tremendous blessing, but we really felt like God had something else for us. And so we began to explore our different options. And, and you know, our mission is really directed towards church planting, and we're una, unapologetic about that. Not solely church planting, but we're, we're definitely very focused on seeing churches, healthy, God-centered, Christ-preaching churches. 
And, and I remember as we began to explore, some opportunities came up where I was able to go to Haiti and just kind of take a look at what God was doing there. And, and it was so encouraging what was happening in Haiti. But I got back and I sat down with the elders and I just, I, I said, I said, I'm not really, I mean, there's so many other churches involved there. There's a, there's a lot of awesome things happening there. I just don't really think that that's where we're supposed to be. And, and the elders said, we, yeah, okay, we, we totally agree. And they said, well, where, where should we go? What should we do? And so uh, I made a phone call to Chicago to the, the, the church plant, the Harvest Bible Fellowship, guy who heads up the church planting, and I just said, I said, look, his name's Kirk, such a wonderful, godly man who's just so concerned about seeing churches planted, and I said, Kirk, I said, you know me, you know our church, you've been here, you visited, I said, you know where we're at, we're, we're five years old now, we're not a young church, you know, we are, but we're not, we're, we're stable, we believe God's calling us to something greater, something different, more involvement, and he, he just said, without hesitation, Ian, you guys need to be involved in Romania. He said, God, God is beginning to plant churches all over Romania. And he said, there is a deep need for other churches to come alongside these young works to be a support and encouragement and to help them. And he said, I've got just a guy for you. I've got just a place for you. He's like, but, but let me just pass this off for you. You pray about it. You think about it. And we collectively as elders, we prayed about this. We, we talked to the pastor there. His name's Yosef. And we had a, kind of an interview phone call. Is this the guy that we want to work with? And we got off the phone. And every one of us looked at each other and said, this is what God is calling us to. And I can tell you, being there this past week affirmed that a thousandfold. This is a church that is looking outside of their own walls. And our prayer here is that we are a church who is looking outside of our own walls. This is a word-driven, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled, gospel-advancing church. Can I just remind you of our pillars for a minute? This is who we say we are unapologetic preaching of the word of God, unashamed adoration, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship, unceasing prayer, completely dependent on the spirit of God to do what only he can do, an unafraid witness sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. Amen. This is who God is calling us to be and to remind us and refresh us that we might not be stagnant, but that we might continue to press on, to move forward. The mandate must be this. We must begin by pursuing the Lord to greater and greater degrees. It is then and only then we can see God using us to move the gospel forward. We must start here. We must be a people devoted to Him, passionately pursuing Him. Secondly, notice this, the ministry Here's a requirement, the ministry is that we must be a proclaiming church. Verse four picks up and it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, I want you to see the emphasis of these few verses here. The emphasis is being placed on the ministry the proclaiming of the word of God. 
And listen, while social justice and relief programs are necessary and very biblical at times, the primary goal of the church of Jesus Christ is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ by the means of proclaiming we are heralds. I think it's important that we we continue to have this as our primary focus. The primary purpose of missions trips is not to have a vacation. That should be a given. It's not to see or experience another culture or part of the world. That's not the primary goal. It's certainly not to draw attention to ourselves and look how righteous and committed I am to the cause of Christ. The purpose is to see the gospel going forward to those who desperately need to hear it. That is the main goal behind missions, so that God might receive greater and greater glory through more people who will know him and worship him. The scope of their ministry is amazing. You talk about guys who are committed to the cause. They just begin to march through village after village, city after city, and they proclaim the word of God. The word of God here is is not simply opening the Bible and explaining every passage. The whole point of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have to understand, like, what propelled them to do this? Yes, they were compelled by the Spirit of God and commissioned by the Spirit of God, but they believed so firmly in the message they were bringing to the world. Think about it. They left a good, comfortable church where they had influence and ministry and God was using them. And here they go off to who knows where to do all kinds of ministry. And we know the life of the Apostle Paul. This is not going to be all fun and games. This is going to be painful. This is going to be costly. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be abused. He's going to be run out of town. He's going to be stoned and left for dead. He's going to be whipped. And yet off he goes. Why? Why do people do this? Listen, listen, is this not your heart that we believe so firmly in the message that we have, that there is no other hope for the nations, right? That people are lost in their sin. They're dead and their trespasses in sin. People, listen, I, I, I was reminded of this. We're walking down the streets in Romania, and all I could think was these people don't know the Lord. These people are lost, and they're dead, and it's such a dark, spiritually dark place. And everywhere you go, listen, Christian, everywhere you go, there are people all around you who don't know Jesus Christ. God has given you the privilege of knowing him. What a gift. God said, you know him. You know him, and you know a lot of people who don't. And so God said, you, you are the person I want to use to go and show them that God loved them so much that he would send his only son to die in their place. They don't have to pay for their sin. As far as the east is from the west so far, he will remove our sin from us, right? This is the hope we bring to people. We don't just bring, like, you, like there's judgment, there's judgment. You know, a lot of Christians preach just simply messages of judgment. I, I hope that's not you. I hope you have the message of judgment in the gospel message. You need it there. But I hope you are bringing people to see the love of God for their souls. I hope you, are, I hope you and the way you carry yourself and the way you talk to people and the way you express compassion and grace and mercy, I hope you are modeling God's love for them. That Listen, that while they're yet enemies of God, his son Jesus died for them. That's what he did for you and me. There is a way to be made right with God. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature or complete in Christ. 
It's remarkable. They just keep going. Do you notice this? Like city after city after city. They keep moving. And I fear, I fear that we are prone, way too prone, to be complacent and stagnant. And we need to embrace this reality in our lives. There is no standing still in the Christian life. There is either moving backwards or there is moving forwards. There is no neutral ground. There are a few things we can learn here from their ministry. First is this, just notice this, their perseverance. I mean, we don't know what happened in every place they stopped, but we can be sure that every place had its blessings and every place had its costs, but they persevered. They just kept on going. They were constant. They were steady. Oh, what a mark of the Christian life. Notice this as well, that we are often far too passive in our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need to be far more active in our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, they weren't sitting around waiting for God simply to drop people in front of them. They were intentionally engaging with everyone they possibly could. And, and here's what we see. Listen, they had a plan. They had a strategy, and it's, it's very rudimentary, but it's a plan nonetheless. Notice this. They, they would go first as a team. Do you notice that? All the ministry in the New Testament, aside from Acts 17 with Paul on Mars Hill, every time we see ministry happening, we see it being done in teams. There is support, there is encouragement, there is blessing. And I love here, they have John Mark, that's who they're talking about there, to assist them as well. He's kind of their protege. He's bringing them along. They're trying to train him up. They go as a team. Secondly, in their strategy, they go to cities. Right? It's very clear. They go to where people are and where they know people will go out from. Thirdly, they go to the Jews first. Look, they go to the synagogues. And then once they're done there, they begin to go to the Gentiles. And let me ask you, what's your plan? What's your strategy for reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you have one? Have you thought about it? Let me encourage you. This, at the beginning of this ministry year, is a wonderful time to stop, to pause, to maybe sit with your spouse and your family and begin to say, hey, hey, team, what's God calling us to? Who are the people that God has put in our life right now, right here, at this time, for this place? What's God going to do? And then what's your strategy? Like, what are you going to do? Who are you going to go to? Are you going to have them into your home? Are you going to invite them out to church? Are you going to meet them at the park? Now, granted, so much of our evangelism happens just day to day and is not planned and structured, but I want to encourage you. It is certainly not wrong to have a plan and to start getting after it. In fact, I could argue for you that that would be very honorable to the Lord. But don't miss the word here. In all of these things, they go, they go, they go. To whom will you go? To whom will we go? And as they faithfully proclaimed, you'll notice that God gave more and greater opportunities. As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to be in Romania, and we were so privileged last Sunday. I know you were, you were filled in. I'm so thankful for just your response to that. We had the privilege of being at the launch of Harvest Bucharest, which is the largest, it's the capital city. Um, and it, was just, it was honestly, it was such a joy to see a God working in the life of this young church. And the pastor, he preached in Romanian, so I didn't quite understand it. I'm sure it was good. He preached from Matthew 28. And he preached the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, unto all nations. 
and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, that, and I just, I sat there, and I knew, I knew what he was preaching, and I could kind of tell where he was going, and, and I just, I sat there, and God just allowed me the privilege of reflecting upon the day we planted this church six years ago. And six years ago, I preached the exact same text. And we're talking afterwards and thinking about the, the, the country of Romania, 20 million people, a tiny, tiny percentage of the people are evangelical Christians. It's predominantly Eastern Orthodox. 88% Orthodox, which is a cold, dead, works righteousness system that leads nobody to heaven but a lot of people to hell. And we're going into these ornate churches, some of them hundreds and hundreds of years old, where they worship the saints and they pray to the saints. And I remember we walked into this one that was about 400 years old, and there's a woman there, and she's kneeling in front of this bench that is just covered with pictures of saints, and there's a box, a clear lid, a glass lid on the top, and in the box is the bones of saints, and she's bowing down and kissing the box and kissing it and weeping and praying. And all, all I could think about was, God, help this place. These people are lost. These people are dead, and they're in a system that is dead, and it gives them no hope at all. And the sweetest time, aside from the launch of the church, was we drove six hours up close to Moldova, right up by Russia, to where our church planter, Yosef, and his family are planting in a city called Yash, the second lar largest city in Romania. And we sat, uh, we spent one night, we drove to one of the, the core group members' house. They're in the core group building, the core group right now, and they got about 25 young people, all young. The older generation is so steeped in the Orthodox tradition, they're so hard to break them out of it, they're so gripped by it, but the young people have rejected it and they're open to hearing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and so we're sitting in this group of young followers of Jesus Christ, we're sitting out on the countryside and it's this home that kind of overlooks this beautiful, beautiful countryside and, and I sat and we, we talked, we shared with them about the importance of what they're doing. Talk to them about what it means to be planting a church and how God has chosen to use the church as the instrument to reach the world, to reach the nations, and what they're doing is not insignificant, and what they're doing is going to matter for eternity, and the commitments they're making now, and their commitment to the, the cause of Christ will be honored and blessed, and if they don't see it in this lifetime, they will certainly see it in the life to come. And, and I remember it was like a flashback for me to six years ago when we're sitting in a basement around the corner from here with 20 people praying, God, what will you do? God, will you do something great? God, there are people all over this country, all over this, this community that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we prayed, we prayed, God, do something that only you can do. And Matt and I, Matt was there from the beginning of our church plan, and some of you were too, and you can remember those days. You remember the, the kind of the fear and trepidation, but the faith that we had 
believing that God was going to do something as we were faithful to the word of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I looked at this, this group of young people and I said, look, we look back now and we just look back in amazement and wonder and awe and say, look, we prayed, we begged God, we petitioned the Lord, we got down on our faces and God has been so faithful. And God will do the same thing here. And we looked at them and we said, look, God is raising up a people right here, right now, at this time, in this place. And it is no accident who he has chosen to be part of his work. Listen, church, do you believe that in your own life? It is no accident you're here. In the sovereignty and providence of God, it is no accident you are here. And if you are willing to get on board, if you are willing to throw yourself into the church of Jesus Christ, to invest yourself in the kingdom of God, seeking first his righteousness and his kingdom, You need to believe with all your heart that God is going to continue to advance the gospel forward and he wants to use you to do it. What might God do through us? What might God do in the Durham region through this group of people? What if God was calling us to take more seriously this year the call to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to become a passionately pursuing and a passionately proclaiming people. What might God do? Like I said, their faithfulness is blessed by opportunity, and that's the same in your life and mine. And in verse 6 and 7, we notice that they come across a man, a Jewish false prophet. He is a magician, and his name is Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul. That's like the governor of the day, Sergius Paulus, and this man is a man of intelligence, meaning he's inquisitive, meaning he's wondering about truth, meaning he's not closing the door on new learning, and that's why he opens the door to Paul and Barnabas. And so he, he hears, obviously, maybe through his servant, Bar-Jesus, this magician who would have likely been a, a big-time advisor for the governor, somebody who would have given him religious instruction, somebody who would have been involved in astrology and astronomy and math and history, and he would have been a, 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 an incredibly smart individual for sure. He had great influence over this proconsul, this governor, Sergius Paulus. But you need to know this, this man, this Bar-Jesus, this magician and Jewish false prophet was involved in occult practices. He was tapping into demonic influences. He was a medium or a sorcerer or a wizard. He was an evil and satanic man who did not have on his mind the things of God but the things of Satan. And this is someone with great power and great influence and ironically, ironically, his name means son of salvation or son of the Savior. Look, Satan loves to influence those with power. And Satan has his proclaimers too, just like Jesus does. And here he wanted to hear this man, Sergius Paulus, the word of God. Word had come to him that these men were teaching something amazing, something fascinating, and he had to hear, so he summons them. He invites them into his presence. And church, you need to know this. If you're faithful, God's going to give you opportunity. Multiplied faithfulness equals multiplied opportunity in God's economy. Be a proclaiming people and watch how God opens doors. Watch who he allows you to speak to. And if we're going to see the gospel continue to go forward, notice this, the mission 
We are to be a powerful church. We are to be a a church that keeps moving forward in power. And verse 8 tells us this, but Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name or the translation of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That is Satan's primary objective in this world. It is to turn people away from the faith. It is to keep people blind and in captivity to their sin. It is to keep people from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, you just need to embrace this reality. When you seek to reach a soul for Christ, you can be sure that all hell wants to prevent you. When you seek to proclaim Jesus Christ to anybody, you need to understand this. You're not walking into neutral territory or neutral ground. You are marching head on into a battle and you are inviting upon yourself a firestorm. There is a battle being waged right now in this world, in this final age of human existence for the soul of every single individual. And we wage war not against flesh and blood, right? But against the principalities and powers of the air. There are spiritual powers at work that are looking to undermine our message and our credibility, that are looking to hinder our mission. And let's be honest, if we look around at the church in North America, he's doing a really good job. The church lacks so much power so comfortable, so content, so complacent, so stagnant. But If you're faithfully proclaiming the word of God, God will increase the opportunities, but know this, with increased opportunities comes increased opposition. That's always the way it works. Satan hates to see the church of Jesus Christ being effective. He will ramp up his assault when we begin to move forward. Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy, and he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that's now, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You know, sometimes people fall away not because of simply their own flesh and blood, not simply because of ignorance or some kind of an intellectual inability to understand the truth. Sometimes people fall away from the truth because of a hellish invasion that's taking place in their life for their soul. This is nothing new. This has always been the way It is. This is what we face. And so what is needed is not a weak, pathetic, powerless church. What is needed is the church of Jesus Christ, to be the church of Jesus Christ, to be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, to be marching forward with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God calls us to. I love this. Look at this. While there's opposition, and you need to know, you're going to face it. Look at this. I love this. All of a sudden, it's like, oh no, this opposition is coming. But, verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You ever do that, Baron? You know what it's like, right, when you're kids? Like, look at my eyes right now. 
This is serious business. You've got to put yourself in this story. You've got to see the confidence that Paul had in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He looks at this man who has, listen, certain demonic power. Certain demonic power, not fake power, real demonic power. And he looks at him with his eyes piercing at him. And he says, you son of the devil. Think about that. That's, uh, that's a little kind of phrase that even Sergius Paulus could have picked up on. He knew this man's name meant son of the Savior. And here he is being called son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. There's nothing good in you. You are wicked through and through. You care nothing about true righteousness. You're full of all deceit and villainy. And will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Would you stop steering people away from what can save their soul? Listen, we are in a real battle. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people make professions of faith in Jesus Christ only so quickly to be grabbed and tossed and pulled away. And the doctrine that is taught has been distorted and they've been distracted and So many who were once following the Lord have veered off and are no longer walking on the straight paths of the Lord. He says, you are a fraud and a fake. And he was about to experience the power of the true God. And what a stark and frightening contrast to the petty little magical games and demonically inspired power that this man had. The power of God is nothing to be trifled with. And in verse 11, look at what he does, so powerful. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The man who was trying to lead others is now having to be led by the hand. A blind, crippled individual. He strikes him blind. And you know, church, here's here's where we can have great hope this morning. When you get into a spiritual battle, you can know for sure that you are on the winning side. If you never, but listen, listen, church, listen. But if you never get involved in the battle, you will never know the sweetness of the victory. This is a temporary judgment. This blindness is only temporary, but there is important symbolism here. You see, the false prophet sits in darkness as the light of the gospel does its work. What confidence we can have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this battle of prophets, the power of God trumps the power of Satan every time, every time, every time. Mark it down, sear it on your heart. Every time, the power of God is greater And in verse 12, it's so, so sweet. Remember, remember, the battle isn't really against Elymas, this magician. It's for the soul of Sergius Paulus. And then the pro-council, I love this, just circle this, believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Truth prevails over error. The power of God prevails over the power of Satan. Those in darkness see the light. That is the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the power of the gospel, and that is the power that is available to you and I. And God Almighty calls the church of Jesus Christ on mission to walk in that power. 
there are many places where Satan has strongholds. I mean, I just think of Europe in general, but Romania, wow, what a dark place spiritually. They lived under communism for 40 years until there was a revolution. A generation decided that they weren't going to take it anymore. They weren't going to be oppressed like this anymore. And God raised up a generation of individuals that decided that they were going to fight back. There were multiple casualties in this revolution. As you walk down the streets in Bucharest, you can see the bullet holes in the walls of the building still. It was a battle. There is a war out there. The world has lived long enough under the control and power of Satan, and we, the church, are part of a revolution, a gospel revolution. We are on the winning side. We march forward with certainty. Nothing would delight my heart more than God raising up a people. Listen, I would love it if half the people in this church said, God is calling me to another place, another nation, to go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would give up half of you, not all of you, half of you, okay? But I would have confidence that God is just going to fill up this place again and train up another army of people to go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to move the gospel forward. But listen, God isn't going to send you there until you've proven yourself here. If you're not concerned about souls here and now, there is no reason to believe you will be if your feet are placed on another piece of geography. But where the church understands the mandate to be a pursuing people engaged in spiritual ministry as a proclaiming people, and when we are a church on mission confronting the world in the power of the Holy Spirit with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will see, with, uh, we will see, you gotta believe this church, we will see the plan of God moving forward. There is nothing that can stop the gospel. It will go forward. Will we be the ones God uses? Will you be the one God uses? When we take up the call to be a church who longs to see, who prays to see, and who works to see the gospel going forward. And will we be a church that believes the promises of God? Listen, that He is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise, church. Listen, promise number two, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. We have the guarantee of victory. So let us not be stagnant. Let us keep moving forward. Father, we pray that you, in your grace, would make this so. God, we humbly admit to you now that we have nothing in and of ourselves, that we can't do this on our own. We know the calling. We feel the compulsion. We believe your word is clear. We believe your word is true. And yet, God, we know we don't have in and of ourselves what is needed, but we believe, Lord, that you have given us everything, everything we need in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the community of faith. So, God, we would ask that you would take us and that you would use us. May this be a year, Lord, where you bear much fruit in us personally and communally as a church. Would we see multitudes of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Would we see the gospel advancing forth in the Durham region, in the nation of Canada, and beyond across the world for the glory and exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ? We want you exalted over all, Lord. That is our heart's desire. May it be so, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.